Thank you, Colin. You have no idea how grateful to God I am for this man. I love him and Amanda pray for them every day and uh, been doing that for years. But, you know, when I retired 10 years ago, I thought I was kissing London goodbye. But Colin has given me London back by having me here. We love it here. Wish we could live here. Uh, but I'm very grateful when I get to come. And um, he kindly allowed me to come to introduce this book. I'm going to be preaching on it and uh, pray that it will be a blessing. Anyway, God bless you. And now would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Habakkuk. Now, you that don't know better, call it Habakkuk. But I had a word with Habakkuk. He told me. He pronounces his name Habakkuk. Would you turn to Habakkuk? Here's how to find it. You go to Malachi. That's the last book in the Old Testament. Go back five books and you get to Habakkuk. Okay? Go to chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. Habakkuk 2 verse 3. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And then the next verse, he says, the righteous will live by his, that's a capital H, his, God's faithfulness. Now, turn over one page, and now Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Now, when you read this verse, remember that it was an agrarian society. Uh, they depended on rain, sun, for their daily food. And here's what Habakkuk says. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, His most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind present right now. That their understanding of what I say and their perception will be as you intend. And upon my tongue that I'll be cleansed. That I'll say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. May this be a word life-changing. That that person who's here right now, who so needs this word, may be transformed, never to be the same again. And may this word bring great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this word that I just read from the prophet Habakkuk, why is it 
important. Why should you listen to me? It touches on one of the most common questions asked by all of us. You have asked this question. I don't care what your background is, how educated you are, whether you're the intellectual type or regard yourself as simple. You've all had this question. Why does God allow evil things to happen? Why does he do it when he could stop it just like this? Why? Answer me this question. Why did God create humankind knowing we would all suffer? Why did he do it? Do you know the answer? God, who is all-powerful and merciful, allows bad things which he could stop, but sometimes doesn't. Well, Habakkuk had the same question, and that's what we're talking about. It takes me back to when I was a little boy, I'd say 10 years old. There was a little kid in our church back in Ashland, Kentucky. I think he was three years old. He, we called him Butch. Everybody loved Butch. Little blonde-headed little boy, three years old. We would take him and throw him around to each other, and it was such a delight. His parents were newly converted. But one Sunday, Butch's father, driving out of the garage, going backwards, didn't know that little Butch was behind the car. And he kept driving. And the dad could feel the bump as the tire went over little Butch. They rushed him to the hospital. He was dead upon on arrival. That couple stopped going to church. Or I remember the case of little William Chan. When I was minister of Westminster Chapel, we had a deacon, uh, Benjamin Chan. They had a little boy. They called him William. He was born with a hole in the heart. Uh, the doctor said, no problem, because when he's two years old, they could operate, and he'll be fine. So two years later, it was time for the operation. I went to the hospital, anointed little William with oil. Never will forget his, his face. I don't know how to explain it except to say it was the most intelligent-looking face I ever saw in a child. Nodded with all prayed, and the next morning, his mother, sobbing on the phone, phoned to say the operation was not a success. I rushed to the hospital, held little William, his lifeless body still warm, as we all sobbed together. He lived two years, two months, two weeks, and two days. Why? Why? Recently, it occurred to me that the two greatest men in the Old Testament were Abraham and Moses. No question, they were the two greatest men of all. And then I discovered something. Who were the two men who suffered the most in the Old Testament? 
it was Abraham and Moses. And this gives me pause when I realize that what I have said I wanted, and I really do mean this, I would rather have a greater anointing than anything in the world. I used to think that was a spiritual request. It may be. I, I don't know if it's spiritual or natural. I want it so bad, can't tell which. All I know is I want it more than anything in the world. And the one day it was as though God said to me, really? And maybe you are here tonight and you say, I want a greater anointing than anything in the world. And then when you find out that the two most anointed men in the Old Testament were also the two who suffered the most. Because like it or not, the greater the anointing, the greater the suffering. And so, ask yourself, how much do you want a greater anointing? Now, in Acts chapter 7, verse 4, Stephen is before the council, and he makes this statement, that God promised Abraham an inheritance in the land of Canaan, but God gave him no inheritance there, not even a foot of ground. You read that. You see that. Have you ever read it yourself? God promised Abraham an inheritance in the land of Canaan, but he didn't get a foot of ground. As John Calvin says in his commentary on Acts chapter 7, verse 5, it must have occurred to Abraham that he had been deceived. And Jeremiah once said, Lord, you have deceived me. Anybody here like that? You felt that God deceived you? As for Moses, one day God turned up and said, Moses, I have seen the misery of my people, and I've come down to, to, I've come down to deliver them. And so when this was announced to the people of Israel, they were so happy, they carried Moses on their shoulders. He was the big hero, that is, until Moses went to Pharaoh to announce the plans and from that moment, Pharaoh said, from now on, you still have to come up with the same quota of bricks, but you find your own straw. And the people of Israel then turned against Moses. And then Moses went to God and said, God, you promised to come and deliver your people, and you have not done it at all. Now, why do I raise this question? It's because I think... There's somebody here. You are, as I speak, in the middle of the greatest trial of your life. And if you're here tonight, this is a message for you. The rest can just eavesdrop. But there's somebody here. You're in the greatest trial of your life. Now, let's start out with the fact. God is pure just without any guilt. You remember the chorus? A God of faithfulness and without injustice, good and upright is He. Do you believe that? That's what the Bible says. And yet, here is God who lets such horrible things happen. Now, in the text that I just read, it says 
write down the revelation, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. What's the revelation? The revelation refers to the very answer to Habakkuk's prayer. Habakkuk wanted to know why does God allow suffering and even seems to side with the enemy? If God is merciful and all-powerful, why does He allow evil since He could stop it in a split second? But then God says, the revelation would be a long time coming, I'm afraid, Habakkuk. In fact, it speaks of the end. What does he mean by end? Well, it means the end, the last day. Throughout the Old Testament, they were looking forward to that day, the day of God, the final day. In our day, we would call it when Jesus comes. That is how long Habakkuk was going to have to wait for the answer to his question. Habakkuk might have said, well, thanks a lot, God. I'm out of here. I have nothing to do with you anymore. I wanted the answer now. And God says, in the end. But you know what? Something happened to Habakkuk. He came to terms with it. And so he says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Now, in a word, Habakkuk let God totally off the hook. So when I've written this book, Totally Forgiving God, it means letting God off the hook. As long as you keep him on the hook, you're saying, I demand an answer. I want to know what's going on. I demand to know. Or you can say, I'll let you off the hook. Because you said, in the end, you will clear your name, and I'm going to wait till then, and I'm going to trust you in the meantime. In a word, Habakkuk totally forgave God. When I was a senior in high school, back in Ashland, Kentucky, I was 17 years old, I was uh, called out of the classroom to, uh, into the principal's office, and I thought I was in trouble. They said, no, there's a phone call for you. And it was unusual to be called out of class for a phone call, but I picked it up, and it was my uncle who said, your mother has just had a stroke. And your father is on the way to pick you up. I said, oh, is she going to be all right? He said, your mother is a very sick woman. We went to the hospital. And there my mother lay in bed, unable to move, paralyzed, and not able to speak. But over the next few weeks, my father, who believed in divine healing brought in five different people to anoint her with oil. Three of them said, and this is their phrase, they prayed through. 
You know that phrase? Prayed through, God was going to heal my mother. Don't worry, they said, Mr. Kendall, your wife will be healed. God has told me she will be healed. Then I'll never will forget one morning as my father came up the stairs to wake me up to say it's time to go to school. He came running up the stairs and said, son, I've got wonderful news. God has just revealed to me he's going to heal your mother. She's going to be fine. And then a couple days later, I myself got a word. And I said, God has told me she's going to be healed. Well, it was about that time that... Uh, our high school band, I played the oboe, but you didn't know that about me. I played the oboe, and we were given a great honor to go to Washington, D.C., and play at the Cherry Blossom Festival, and we, we were so excited, but I thought I wouldn't go because my mother's too ill. No, my mother said, you go. My dad said, go. So it was an overnight train trip to Washington from Ashland, Kentucky, Arrived at the station the next morning and uh, went to a restaurant next door to the station and immediately called my Aunt Frida, who happened to live in Washington. I said, hi, it's me. She said, where are you? I, I said, it's, it's RT. I'm here in Washington. I know, where are you? Oh, well, I'm at a restaurant next door to the uh, train station. She said, don't leave. Uncle Miller is coming to get you. Uh, what do you mean? Just, just stay there. What is this? Your mother passed away this morning. I remembered as though it were yesterday. I've never recovered. My father was afraid I would lose my faith. For some reason, I didn't. All I know is, it was a horrible thing. I was so sure she'd be healed. Now listen, that episode does not qualify me to preach this sermon. Some of you have gone through a lot worse than that. What does possibly qualify me is 57 years in the ministry, where I've listened to people that you perhaps know, I was across town in Westminster Chapel for 25 years. I bet you'd never guess the most common question I got in 25 years. What would you say is the most common question when people come into the vestry I got in 25 years? It wasn't what happens to those who've never heard the gospel. It wasn't why does God allow suffering. The most common question I got in 25 years was why can't I get married? I've got a feeling there's somebody here with that question. <laughs> but that's it. Or, why does God not answer my prayer? Why, when I rededicated my life, did all these bad things happen? But I can tell you the most difficult case, moment, question that I ever was faced with in 25 years. One moment, there was a German girl who had muscular dystrophy, had a speech impediment besides her German accent, walked with a limp. She would come in almost every Sunday night 
And before she would leave, she would say to me, Dr. Kendall, why can't I find a husband? I would look at her and say, I don't know. I don't know. And I would pray with her and she would leave and she'd be back the next week. We retired a couple years after retirement. I heard that she moved back to Germany and took her own life. Why? Why? Why does God desert me, you ask, in the time at my lowest point? Why doesn't God heal me? Why, when I served the Lord all these years, have I lost my job? I don't know. Well, we read that God gave Abraham no inheritance there in the land of Canaan, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. Abraham could easily have felt betrayed. But you know something? He did what I'm going to ask you to do if you need this sermon. I call it breaking the betrayal barrier. If there's anyone here, you feel that God has betrayed you. Now, I've talked to people that say, well, I've never felt that God betrayed me. I understand that. And I've talked to people that have actually said, I've never felt God let me down. I want to say to them, well, now, how long have you been a Christian? Or how old are you? Life isn't over yet. <laughs> but maybe you haven't felt betrayed. Abraham did. Felt betrayed. You may know that in the 20th century, one of the greatest aeronautical feats was when they broke the sound barrier, when an airplane could fly faster than the speed of sound. It was a great feat. But what I'm putting to you tonight is a greater thing than that. That's to break the betrayal barrier. And now, when you do that, I want you to know you are an unusual person. I speak as a pastor uh, who has been experienced with people coming into the vestry with all kinds of problems. I can't prove what I'm about to say statistically, but if I were to guess, I would say that roughly 9 out of 10, when they feel betrayed by God, just back off and say, thanks a lot, God, I'm out of here don't believe in you anymore. They never know, ever, what might have happened had they persisted in faith. I reckon one out of ten break the betrayal barrier. So if you're here tonight and you feel betrayed by God, if you're like most, you will eventually just give it up. But there's one out of ten who are like those in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, you perhaps know that the 11th chapter of Hebrews is called the faith chapter of the Bible. 
one after another, did what they did by faith. Uh, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Joshua, Samuel. But did you ever read this verse? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, it says, They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. None of them received what had been promised. You think, well, why did they persist in faith? Were they stupid? Were they crazy? And perhaps you talk to people who can't understand why you would still be a Christian when God hasn't answered your prayer. You say, well, I, I, don't, I don't get you. I, don't, I just don't know why you would do it. But yet, in Hebrews chapter 11, not a single one of them got what was promised. And yet the writer says the world was not worthy of them because they all turned the world upside down. You see, you are invited to break the betrayal barrier, something to which we are called but too few experience. And you know what the equivalent is? It's going for the gold. It's getting the gold medal. An exceedingly rare thing. The gold medal. And God wants to give you that. How do you get it? By persisting in faith, though you don't understand. Let me put it to you this way. In Hebrews chapter 11, this is not a description of saving faith. This is not that. Hebrews 11 isn't how to become a Christian. Hebrews 11 describes those who are already saved. They persisted in faith. They persisted in faith. Even though they didn't get what was promised, they said, it's okay. They still persisted in faith. Now, here is the premise, and never forget this. God is perfect, pure, and just. He has done no wrong. Past, present, future. But he has allowed things to happen which we don't understand. Sometimes he appears not to keep his word. Sometimes he appears to break his promises. The question is, will we accuse him or let him off the hook? For example, if God does not answer your prayer, are you going to persist in faith and say, forget it? He allows evil when he could stop it. And you've been as faithful to him as you know how to be. And then he deserts you in your time of need. It's kind of like with Hezekiah. It says the Lord left him to test him. To see what was in his heart. You yourself have prayed and read your Bible daily. But God hides himself. And even the worst evil imaginable takes place. Well now, Habakkuk is the book in the Bible that chiefly answers the question of the problem of evil. It's a little bit in Job, but it's mainly this little book of Habakkuk. Because he asked the question, why does God allow suffering when he's perfectly capable of stopping it at any moment? In fact, you might like to know that Habakkuk had four complaints. Number one, God does not answer his prayer. Number two, God looked the other way when violence came upon his own people. 
Three, God's own covenant people are having to endure injustice. And fourth, God tolerated evil. And Habakkuk says, I want to know. I want to know why. And I want to know now. Have you ever been like that? I need to know. <laughs> when I was at Westminster Chapel, we had some hard days. There were some tough times. And, and uh, I had a group of people that didn't like me very much. And I opened my Bible one day to this verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here's what it says. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. I thought, oh, thank you, Lord. I love it. He'll give relief to you who are troubled. Uh, oh, thank you, Lord. Then I felt an impression, keep on reading. <laughs> this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. Oh, no, I don't want to wait that long. I want you to kill him now. No, you have to wait. And this is essentially what God is saying to Habakkuk. But Habakkuk broke the betrayal barrier. Something happened to him. At the end of the book, he says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, and the fields produce no food, though there's no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. Well, now, let's change the subject just a little bit. This problem of evil. Perhaps there's students here in theology or philosophy, and you will know that it's the hardest question there is. It is the eternal, unanswered question. Why does God allow evil and suffering? Only a fool would claim to give the answer. But I'm going to have a go. I'm going to have a go right now. Because I know part of the reason. Part of the reason. Now, are you ready for this? It's so that you might have faith. So that you might believe. You need to realize what a privilege it is to have faith. To get to believe. Let me put it another way. There are two worldviews when it comes to faith. There's the secular view and the biblical view. The secular view is seeing is believing. The biblical view is believing without seeing. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So the secular view is I will believe it when I see it. You ever heard that phrase? I'll believe it when I see it. But when you see it, it's not faith anymore. When you see it and believe it, that's not faith. It's only faith when you don't see but still believe. Well, it's like at the cross. The centurions said to Jesus, Hey, Son of God, come down from the cross so we can see and believe. See and believe. That's the secular view. 
had Jesus come down from the cross, then they would see, but it wouldn't be faith then. Faith, to be faith, is when you don't see, but still believe. Some years ago, when I first started my ministry at Westminster Chapel, I had an amazing breakthrough reading the Scriptures. I wish this happened to me every day, but it happened then at least once. And I was reading from the 11th chapter of John because I was going to preach on Lazarus being raised from the dead. And as I read this verse, I saw something I'd never seen in my life. John 11:15, Jesus said, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Here's the story. Lazarus was a close friend of Jesus. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha. One day, Lazarus took deathly ill. So Mary and Martha did the predictable thing. They sent word to Jesus, except that Jesus was quite a distance away. But no problem. They knew that Jesus would stop whatever he was doing, come straight to Bethany, heal Lazarus, and keep him from dying. Would you believe it? Jesus showed up four days after the funeral. In fact, Jesus said to the disciples, uh, Lazarus is dead. Then he said, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there so that you may believe. This is what taught them faith. Let me put it another way. Suppose every time you prayed, just like that, your prayers answered. You ask God, answer. You ask God, answer. You ask God, answer. After a time or two, you don't need faith anymore. You just ask God, it's going to happen. That's not faith. You have faith when you ask God and He doesn't answer, but you still believe. And Jesus said to the disciples, I'm glad I wasn't there so you can believe. Well, what happened was that uh, Jesus uh, showed up four days after the funeral and both Mary and Martha very upset with Jesus. Now, this matter of seeing and then believing... You see, that's not faith. Let me tell you when everybody will see. It's described in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he comes with clouds. Every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him, and all of the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Wail. Have you ever heard the sound of a wail when people are desperate and they almost are impervious to whoever's around them? They just wail. And I'm going to tell you something. You will be there. You are going to see Him come with clouds. And this will include Christians and non-Christians. The non-Christians are those who are going to wail because they're going to say, oh, 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 God, 
I believe now. I believe. I believe. Too late. It won't be called faith then. Because when you see, it's not faith anymore. This is why this is a precious time. At this moment, you have the privilege of believing. Because one day, you won't have that privilege. When every eye shall see him, everybody's going to believe. But it won't be faith. This is why the Bible says, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Let me ask you a question. Do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And if you stood before God, and you will, and he were to ask you, and he might, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Well, now that's the question. Well, now, prophet Habakkuk, he's our hero. He did not get what he wanted. He wanted the answer right now. But God did answer, but not the answer Habakkuk wanted. He says, wait for the revelation, though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and not delay. It speaks of the end. Habakkuk could have said, no, I won't wait that long. But he said, yes. And according to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, Habakkuk was justified by faith. Did you know there are two ways you're justified by faith according to the Old Testament? One, when you believe the promise, like Abraham. Abraham was very discouraged one day. He was getting old. Sarah was too old to have children. Abraham was a very wealthy man. He had a servant, Eliezer, and Abraham said, God, am I to leave my wealth to Eliezer? And God says, Abraham, go outside and count the stars. And he started counting the stars. And God said to Abraham, so will your seed be. Abraham might have said, nonsense. He might have said, don't joke with me. But you know what? It says, he believed it. And God said, good. For that, I count you righteous. That is used in the New Testament. Once we transfer the trust that we had in our good works to what Jesus did for us on the cross, God puts to our credit righteousness. Some, when they hear the gospel, the idea that you will go to heaven because Jesus died for you, they say, don't joke with me. That's nonsense. I don't believe it. But then there are some who say, I believe it. And God says, good. I call you righteous. The other way it can happen, according to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, quoted three times in the New Testament, when you take God at his word and are willing to wait to the end, and you can say with Habakkuk, though the fig tree does not bud, I will rejoice. Well, now, the question is, how do you forgive God totally? Well, I'll tell you why, or, or how to do it. Five things. One, be totally honest with God. Tell Him your complaint. 
you may say, oh, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, God, I, I'm, I'm disappointed in you. I, I, I don't like it that I don't know. It's, God can cope with that. What he doesn't want is for you to tell the world. Don't complain about God to others. Just go to God and say, I'm, 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 I'm struggling. He's okay with that. Second, make a list of those things you are truly thankful for. You'll be surprised how big the list is. Count your blessings, name them one by one. It will surprise you what the Lord has done. Psychologists have revealed not too long ago there's statistics to prove that thankful people live longer. Count your blessings. Three, fight self-pity and a feeling of entitlement with all your heart because giving into those things just pleases the devil. Fourth, choose to believe that God is just and has a purpose in what he permitted. You say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And fifth, be willing to wait for things to become clear to you. When I was a boy, we used to sing this song. Someday he'll make it plain to me. Someday when I his face shall see. Someday from tears I shall be free. For someday I will understand. We'll talk it over in the by and by. I'll ask the reason. He'll tell me why. Remember that the devil doesn't want you to set God free. He doesn't want you to let him off the hook. The devil is the great accuser. Don't give the devil pleasure by giving in to the hate that the world has toward God. I'll make a confession to you tonight. I don't understand the book of Revelation. Now, maybe you do. I did when I was 19 years old. I don't now. But I do know three things. God wins. Satan loses. And on the last day, God will clear his name when every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There'll be no more death, crying, or pain. And so when he clears his name, he'll do it in such a way, listen to me, nobody will say, this is not fair. And when he does, even we who don't understand it, we don't know why, but by having affirmed God now, we'll be on the winning side then and can rejoice. Those who wait till then to get the answer, it's too late. And you will give a thousand worlds if you had let God off the hook now. The God of the Bible is the true God. Affirm Him. Dr. Michael Eaton says, it is a biblical principle 
that when God promises something but which does not apparently come to pass, you are given a temporary substitute which is in fact far better than what you initially wanted. Take in Hebrews chapter 11. Not a one of them got what was promised, but what they did have, my word, they wouldn't change it for anything. They turned the world upside down. Or perhaps you know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, who in a diving accident became quadriplegic. She paralyzed from the neck down. Thousands have tried to pray for her, see that she got healed. She's never been healed. But you know what? Instead of getting healed, she's got a ministry to millions around the world. She's become a household name. She told me she doesn't want to be healed. The apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Don't know what it was, but it was so horrible. He said, I asked God three times for it to go. And one day God said, what if I just give you a lot of grace? Oh, says Paul, I'll take it. And that was better than having the thorn removed. And whatever it is in your life, you can take this to the bank. When God says no to your request, it's because what He has in mind for you is better than what you originally wanted. Back to the story of Mary and Martha. When Jesus finally showed up, you know what they said? Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. They were angry. They were blaming Jesus for Lazarus' death. Jesus didn't moralize them. He didn't make them feel guilty. He didn't say, stop it. If you'll just be quiet, I'm going to raise him from the dead in about five minutes. Just stop it. No. The Bible says he just wept with them. He wept with them. He knew that they didn't know what he was going to do in five minutes. And Jesus knows that we don't know. And he weeps with us. And then it turns out that the strategy all along was to raise Lazarus from the dead. Had Jesus answered the prayer of Mary and Martha, we would never have known what God could have done. It turns out that raising Lazarus from the dead was a better idea than keeping him from dying. And God always has a plan better than what you wanted. Rick Warren says, when I face any apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is due to my limited capacity. In other words, when the Scriptures seem to contradict themselves, the problem lies with my inability to understand, not because Scripture contradicts itself. That, my friend, is the quintessence of breaking the betrayal barrier. You affirm God. You don't have the evidence, but you just affirm Him without the proof. And that's breaking the betrayal barrier. Well, I close now. What if someone here tonight, you come to terms with the fact that your most earnest prayer will not be answered. What if you come to terms with the fact that you won't be healed? What if you come to terms with the fact you won't get married? 
What if you won't get the reconciliation you want? What if the revival that you were praying for isn't coming? What if you come to terms with the fact that you won't have children? What if you come to terms with the fact that those people who won't forgive you will always hold a grudge? What if you, you realize that the faulty verdict from that uncaring judge will not be reversed? What if that enigmatic situation that has always bedeviled you will always remain an enigma? What if you go to your grave unvindicated and the people out there will always believe those lies? What if there will be no clarification of those difficult verses in the Bible? What if that prophecy given to you will remain unfulfilled? What if that disability you have lived with won't go away? What if your nightmarish marriage will go on and on? What if you won't get the job you wanted? What if you don't get to live in the house of your dreams? Can you say, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in God my Savior. If you can say that, the angels say, congratulations. You have broken the betrayal barrier. You've won the gold. You've joined the big leagues, the realm of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Habakkuk, Ezekiel. You've entered into the major leagues. Pretty good comfort if you ask me. What is more, your anointing will be greater here on earth. And then, best of all, you know what's going to happen? One day, you will be looking right in the eyes of Jesus. And he's looking at you as if to no, no one else, just at you. And says to you, well done. Can you imagine the joy? I watched the Olympics, as you do, and that moment when the person who wins the gold stands there and hears their national anthem of their country. All they worked for all those years, it's now happening. They got it. Some sing, some smile, and some sob like babies. What will it be like when Jesus says, well done? Will we laugh? Will we cry? Will we shout? Will we not be able to speak at all? I only know it's joy than which no greater can be conceived. That's as good as it gets. And it's worth waiting for. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I ask you to take this word and apply this word by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.